Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic and intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm joined again this week with Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy for Catholic Studies Academy. And uh, today we're going to continue our conversation on the idea of a Christian worldview. And so we understand that, you know, the Christian faith, it's no surprise to, to our listeners, but the Christian faith has been declining for decades. Its influence and appeal, it's fallen remarkably uh, in recent years. Any Pew statistics you find out there will demonstrate this. And it appears that the faithful are simply disappearing. They are not just becoming fallen away Catholics, but they're becoming just anti-religion altogether. And I think this also goes to, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is kind of the idea of the Christian worldview and it, the way that it's operating today, mm-hmm. that the Christianity has always brought kind of a different worldview to its believers, and it's the way that its believers have operated since the time of Christ. Um, so, Dr. Smith, to get us started here, what do you think are kind of what do you think is kind of the the operating worldview that's within Christianity today? Thanks, Jason. Uh, the it's a great question. I, I think that the worldview that seems to inform the perspective that seems to inform contemporary Christians, we can see the, the trace, the history of it back to the late 19th century, particularly uh, late 19th century German philosophy and theology and sort of Catholicism. We call some of these theological strains modernism. In Protestant theology, it's called uh, liberalism. And the essential problem here is a view of uh, the world, a form of Christian thought that is anthropocentric rather than theocentric. Um, we, uh, to find those real quick, if you would. Sure, yeah. So uh, anthropocentric, anthropos just taken to mean um, humans, right, or human beings. Mm-hmm. So uh, so if somebody's a philanthropist, right, then they're a lover of human beings. So a um, anthropocentric view is a view that puts man, human suffering, human satisfaction, human priorities at the center, right, of um, a form of thought, a paradigm or intellectual tradition that's distinct from a theocentric perspective in which we put, uh, we recognize God as the center or primary principle in a, in our system of thought. Some would say, well, you know, where we are on earth and uh, we're, we're called to be Christ to other people. Christ mm-hmm. came to save other people. So couldn't, couldn't somebody argue, well, isn't that kind of, the, shouldn't we have the same anthropocentrism as Christ did? Yeah, okay. So I would say, one, Christ wasn't anthropocentric. Uh, I would contest <laughs> that as a good reading of the New Testament. Um, <laughs> but in addition to that, uh, maybe and more directly to what we're going to talk about here is, you know, save man from what, right? So that the, there's a, a broader framework in which we need to be able to think about that topic, right? So mm-hmm. yes, of course, you know, there are um, Christianity, it does bring the good news, right? Christianity does bring the gospel uh, and the gospel is good news for God's people. But to understand the gospel, really, I think there's a, a, a broader framework within which the gospel makes sense. So in some ways, I kind of think the, the version, the account, the Christian account that we have uh, essentially been, you know, using throughout the, uh, the 20th century, but especially since, say, the 1960s, 70s, is really a, a version that, that doesn't make any sense at all. 
right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of affected. I, I'm kind of like, well, I, I kind of understand because it doesn't what we're what we're offering here doesn't actually uh, make sense. The the and the central reason it doesn't make sense is is this lack of the real kind of framework that or the point, I guess the 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 foundation that the pillar really around which Christian doctrine is built. And, and so that if you don't have this pillar in place, then um, your, um, your Christian doctrine, your Christian worldview is not going to actually hang together. And that pillar really is, is God, right? The Christian conception of God, which I do think is something that uh, we can say some things about philosophically, but it is that the full picture of it is certainly a specifically Christian version of understanding of God. And I, 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 I want to say in addition to that, that in a genuine Christian worldview, if you're understanding who God is, right, at least to some mm -hmm. degree, then necessarily God is going to come first because that's the way it is in reality, right? In reality, in the Christian worldview, God is quite literally first right? <laughs> and primary. So let's look at this, this framework you said, and I, and I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head, particularly with, it's important for us to begin with God. And I, and I would even go so far as to say, it's important for us to begin to God because that is the only starting place if we are going to truly understand who man is. Sure. That if we try to begin to understand man apart from God, we're, we're, we're spinning our tires. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna get at it, at the truth in the heart of it, which I think a lot of, is what a lot of people, you know, even good Christians try to do today. They try to understand human beings, you know, apart from this creature-creator uh, relationship. Right, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that's, and that's really, the, the, that's really I think, the, the, the key concept here. If you think about a Christian worldview, we think that there's God and everything else, right? Yeah. Uh, so everything uh, belongs in one, one category of everything other than God or God, right? <laughs> and um, that is, <clears throat> the, uh, that's the way reality is fundamentally. And importantly, like God is not the biggest or best thing in the world. God is outside of that category altogether, right? So what we have is a fundamentally, essentially hierarchical view in which there's God, who is the unconditioned, uh, the unchanging, the undefined, etc., and there's everything else that is conditioned upon God, defined in relation to God, um, and depends upon God. So okay, that, that's pretty. That, that's pretty easy to keep in my head. God, everything else. <laughs> it is, but it's, uh, so, so if that's your view of reality, and I and I would I would offer that that is the biblical and you know, traditional Christian view of, of, of the cosmos, right? That there is the cosmos and then the entire cosmos is subject to something outside of that cosmos, which is God, right? Yeah. Um, yeah who is God? And so, um, you know, God's not the highest part of it. He's not the best part of it. He's a wholly different reality uh, that's superior to the cosmos and to which the cosmos is inferior. So we have to have that hierarchical view. And now, that said, there is a relationship between these two realities, right? Um, and sure, that ties sure. into the hierarchical uh, picture I was painting there, that the, the world is dependent entirely upon God, right? The world is defined in relationship to God. Uh, and the, uh, the biblical terminology here is the creator-creature relationship. Yeah, that, that idea, I am a creature, is very important. I think too often we run to everyone as a child of God. Yeah. 
and and that's there's not there's nothing false about that it's just a little bit truncated right the broader vision right is to see that mankind and everything else other than god is a creature of god right and therefore uh subject to god and dependent upon god uh radically and i don't just use that word radically here uh uh, for a fact, I mean it quite literally, like down to the roots of its being. Uh, everything, everything other than God is subject to God. There's a deep theological truth, you know, to the to the children's song. He has the whole world in his hands. Sure, you know, right. like that 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 you know, and this goes kind of back to what we talked about in our last episode with uh, uh, causation. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, God being the first and primary cause, that is different in nature than any other uh, cause or effect after that. Right. Uh, you know, and so I think that that goes back to that foundation. In, in framing our worldview, we begin with God. Got that. Right. Uh, what, what are kind of some of the other components or maybe what's, what are the, the further implications in kind of uh, building this, this sure. worldview? So if I first think of myself as a creature, right? So I need to think of myself, like when I, when I think about myself, my experience, the world in which I live, I need to think about it as creation, as a creature of God. Which means that, like, at my fundamental kind of basis, I'm defined relative to God, right? I am His creation. Yeah. So that I shouldn't be thinking anything about myself that's in terms of my foundation, my essence being something that's autonomous, right? Uh, I am not alone to myself. I am uh, quite literally uh, defined in relation to God. My deepest definition, my deepest meaning at the baseline, maybe not the most important, <laughs> right? But the deepest is that I am a creature. What that means is that everything, I put it, was, I put it in the negative more clearly, without God, I am absolutely nothing. Uh, metaphysically, psychologically, ethically, but even just at the most, maybe most importantly, metaphysically, you know, yeah. without God, I am nothing and I am totally dependent upon God uh, for my being and everything that I have, all of my powers, all of my operations, acts, life, development, all those things. I was going to say, I think, and I think you can see this, the, the, the contrary, you can see it very clearly in our society today where, you know, the big, big push with whether you're adolescence, everything is about self-definition and this, right. this idea of, you know, autonomy as kind of the highest virtue or the highest kind of ability we can have. Uh, is our ability to direct absolutely everything about ourselves, that we define who we are. And again, you're never going to, to get at it in this way. And this can even fall into, you know, even, you know, uh, the, the operations of many Christians today sure. about raising their kids, you know, and saying, well, you know, define who you are, who, you know, and this gets into, you know, many sexual issues as well. But, sure. you know, the, the, the second we, we divorce God from trying to understand who we are, or even trying to discover who we are, you know, especially in our adolescent periods and things like that. The, the second we, we, we throw God out of the picture, we just fall into uh, false facades and just yeah. uh, yeah. uh, complete absurdities yeah. uh, to, to how it is. It's like we think that we think we're something that we're, we're actually completely not, you know, so you know, uh, so I talk about self-definition, autonomy is another way, is one way to put it, a, a similar concept that you kind of bring out. Uh, I think the idea, underlying idea is independence, right? You know, we all want, uh, want to be independent. I'm independent. I don't depend on anyone. And that's at the deepest metaphysical roots, false, right? <laughs> um, yeah. By your very nature as a creature, right? You are defined as God's dependent. Yeah. And within that framework, then we can start talking about children of God, 
right? But, um, you know, like even when we rebel against God, the very instruments, the very powers that we employ to rebel against him are in fact things supplied by God, right? We're dependent, even yeah. upon, uh, so dependent upon him that we depend upon him even for the means with which we may rebel against him. And so that I think gets really, you know, that starts to get at, I think, wow, okay, so that's my actual status in the world, right, is creature and dependent. I think that also helps to form, I think, in a, a better way uh, than oftentimes we get what it really means to be in the image of God. So we're very fond of talking about uh, what it means to be in the image of God. But one of the things that's really interesting about that is if you really think about it, right, the image of God, right, if that's how we want to define ourselves, that is a relative definition, right? And if yeah. we're going to base our dignity on that, that's a relative dignity. That is, it's a dignity defined, right, in relation to God, right? So you have the image of God, right? So that even my identity is that of an image, right? So as a philosopher, that makes me think of, you know, some of the, um, the metaphors employed by, by Plato in terms of the thing itself and the image. You know, that, that, that does not at all decrease our, our status as creatures or dependents, right? Images yeah. are utterly dependent, completely dependent upon the originals. That's the status that we need to recognize. We are in the position of being a dependent. Yeah. Uh, we are in the position of being a subordinate. We are, this is, this is going to be hard. We are inferior to God. Right? <laughs> um, uh, God is superior to us. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's, it, that's exactly the way it should be, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. We need to think about ourselves that way. as uh, inferior uh, subject dependence, right? Subordinate dependence upon God. That language, you know, I, I just happen to be rereading. Um, have you ever read, Jason, the, um, the Sinner's Guide? I, I've read, I remember my mom actually gave it to me. Uh, I think I was a teenager, which God bless her for doing that, you know. But uh, uh, For your Lenten reading, right? If you want something that's kind of pressing and something that you're not going to hear at your average pulpit, yeah, go read that. Right? Uh, that idea of the radical dependence, the radical subordination, the radical inferiority of man in relation to God, that, that man is uh, defined in, uh, in those terms, is a very common Christian view, you know, it's something that's been lost, right? The, that picture, and I'm saying it with a, a lot of emphasis, just because it's become sure. so weird to our, our ears. There are other things to say in addition to what I'm saying, of course, additional perspectives that need to be brought in. But that's a baseline, right? And, and has very important ethical implications. It also, you know, not only serving as kind of the, the basis for a, a worldview, I mean, it also serves as the basis for human nature, mm -hmm. you know, which I, always, which I always find interesting today where we live in a society that holds up on the one hand, uh, we are all equal, you know, this, this egalitarian sense on the one hand, right. but, then they, but then they turn around and they say, well, there's no real such thing as human nature and that every, you define everything about who you are but it's it's like no how can we have there has to be something in common outside outside of just our autonomy you know there has to be something in common that that makes us equal but then on the on the flip side of that we immediately say well you just define everything about who you are in yeah, fact you I can say, even, i want to define myself as king yeah yeah or <laughs> dictator you know <laughs> definition uh, so it gives us a point of departure right um for understanding ourselves, understanding our relationship to our fellow man, um, that we are all um, 
jointly creatures of God. Uh, we are all um, uh, jointly his inferior subordinates, uh, so to speak. By subordinate, I mean, you know, what it, the literal meaning of the word, like subordination, right? We are ordered under God, right? Um, that's literally true, <laughs> right? Uh, or yeah. at least that, that, that points at the, the metaphysical reality uh, here. And as I say, it gives a, a, it suggests very important ethical implications. So if in reality, right, I am um, defined as God's creature, as his uh, dependent inferior uh, uh, subordinate, then, you know, by, um, by being, by nature, God is um, the Lord, right? That is that God is uh, uh, the authority, right? Not as in like God should be in charge. That it's not even a should be, right? It's a metaphysical <laughs> fact that God is in charge. Uh, he has he never asked permission and he never will ask permission uh, to be your authority, to be uh, your head. Uh, that's terribly undemocratic. Uh, <laughs> so God is king, right, in a way that's difficult to overstate. Maybe you might want to prefer a different word, but any human authority, any human kingship is just a mere shadow of the reality, right, that God, that God is in terms of how we're related to him. Now, I think that this actually sets up something that's very interesting, right? So once you kind of get this on the table, then you're really thinking about what does it mean to talk about the creator-creature relationship? And yeah. that should be our fundamental hierarchical twofold way of approaching reality, right? We don't think, we, well, we can temporarily, of course, think about ourselves uh, and other things like, you know, plumbing or fixing cars without bringing God directly into it. But anytime we're moving into sort of thinking about things fundamentally uh, and thinking about large life kinds of uh, projects, that that has to be thought about in terms of, I am a creature who is a dependent upon the creator so that I, I don't think about myself in my, in my individuality, although that's not, that, that's not relevant. That's not fundamental. What's fundamental is my relationship to God. Um, my relationship to God as yes. someone over whom God ha- exercises authority. That, that, I think that's a, a neat way to think about human beings because it's fundamentally metaphysical and fundamentally relational, right? Uh, now, I think what we sort of push against, lots of people like that word relational, but uh, yeah. what they're not going to like, it's fundamentally relational and hierarchically so, right? Um, that is, there is an RK here and I'm not it. Um, <laughs> right? In a way, though, actually, that I even think just at a practical level, that's a huge relief. Uh, yeah. Trying to be the king of the universe as a human being is impossible and insane, and leads to, I think, right, uh, like uh, a lack of mental health, uh, leads to uh, disappointment, obsession, all sorts of terrible things, right? Sort of make that our emphasis. I think human health, right, just mental health, human uh, flourishing, actually, this is the framework, right? To recognize I'm not the RK, I'm not the principle of everything, and thank God, literally. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, they, they may recognize that. But I think it would also, uh, this understanding would contribute also to marital health, particularly <laughs> because some people may recognize that, like, okay, I am not the king, but yeah. they may place that kind of expectation on their spouse, saying, yeah. well, I'm not particularly happy this person will fulfill me ultimately. Yeah. Right. And, you know, yeah, you're going to be severely let down, you know. <laughs> yeah, ask, ask my wife, you know. Yeah, you don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the worst thing you ever hear from a, a potential spouse is, you're my ultimate end, right? Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know? um, <clears throat> Uh, I think that that from a, a lot of different perspectives, recovering this this worldview, this sense of this re- relational hierarchical setting in which I should think about myself, right? If that's fundamental, yeah. if that's at my fundamental core, then I don't need to sense. I need to sit, of course, spend time trying to examine myself as an individual, but never outside of that context, right? That needs to be the Christian framework in which I address everything that's important about my decisions important about my self-understanding uh, and about the decisions I make uh, is where does this fit in that picture, right? right. Um, you know, where does this relationship, where does this professional aspiration, uh, where does this habit or um, uh, lifestyle, where does it fit within the framework of, not what Ben Smith thinks, right? But within the framework of my status as, a, um, as someone under God. That's yeah, the- and I think that, I think this also probably serves as a foundation to my relationship with Jesus Christ, because this sure. is, you know, a huge thing, particularly right now with, you know, evangelization. Mm-hmm. People immediately kind of go and they preach this relationship with Jesus. But I think that can, uh, uh, I think that can be kind of misunderstood if we don't have as a foundation this understanding of, uh, creator-creature relationship sure. that, yeah. that it can kind of put us put us on this even almost almost even playing field uh, with Christ Himself in a in kind of a radical way of of referring to ourselves as being Christ to others. Yeah, and I think I remember I remember reading something about uh, just the the idea. I think it was uh, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand or somebody. Uh, they were talking about the the idea of what would Jesus do. And they were talking about why this is wrong. Because they were like, first off, Jesus was God. So he did a lot of things. <laughs> he did a lot of things as the divine person, you know, uh, that, that we're called to not, not be Christ, but to be Christ-like, which is, yeah. which is completely, which is completely a, a different thing, you know. Uh, uh, but but I, I, always, I always like that, you know, small distinction, but I think an important <laughs> one. Uh, that's certainly true, uh, Jason, and I think helpful in our approach to Christology, even at a uh, practical level. Uh, for sure. I mean, very often we forget that. I mean, very often people forget that Jesus is a divine person, right? Yeah. But that's 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 matter for uh, 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 an additional podcast. Um, uh, but I, uh, but in addition, I would say like you know, I find this way of thinking actually quite helpful because it gets you out of what I would kind of consider almost like the metaphysical loneliness of the modern approach to things. So Descartes and all these people, uh, you know, oftentimes well intended, but they have this this sense that they just have to start from scratch, like from just, from almost nothing, like from almost the void. I have yeah. to think my way out of the void. And of course it always collapses. It never works taking that approach. Uh, and there's a, I think a tremendous uh, loneliness to it, uh, metaphysically to be sure, right? I mean, I'm gonna just build up the world from scratch. Well, that's not gonna work. Um, <laughs> or, you know, psychologically, rather, like, we don't start from nothing, right? Well, Christian thought should always move within and take its launch from the creator-creature relationship. You could even call it kind of covenant, right, between uh, the creator and creature, uh, that that relationship is, and that relational framework, right, conditions our thoughts, right, about the world. We don't have to start from nothing, uh, we have a, a relational framework in which to, to think about ourselves. 
this is actually, uh, I think that makes it helpful when we start to think about ethics, even at a practical level. If you accept this worldview, right, then one of the things you sh- uh, that follows from it, Augustine talks about this in uh, the De Libero, that as a creature of God, I receive everything from God. I am totally dependent upon God. I am his dependent in a way that's even more radical than your children. But you could talk about, you know, that that is an analogy, right? So especially when your child, yeah. is, it's surviving for more than a day depends upon the parents. You know, that, that's just, that's just a, a slight image of what the actual relationship is like right? <laughs> that we have towards oh, God. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm totally dependent upon him. Therefore, in justice, right, I owe back to God everything, right? Now, we have a tendency to think, to say, to jump immediately to, oh, it's good for me to give everything back. And I, uh, and I believe that that's true. But the first reason it's true is because it's due and owed to God in justice, right? That sounds a little strange, I think, to modern ears to think about. That implies that one can be just or unjust towards God. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite quotes from Augustine, you know, is when he was talking about kind of natural law and the Ten Commandments. Is, you know, he said, you know, God wrote on the tablets what man ceased to read in his heart. But we don't, you know, and and sometimes when we talk about natural law, we think about natural law towards others particularly. But we don't think of natural law as the first three commandments. Uh, But in in fact, like you said, you know, uh, injustice and as, you know, sovereign uh, creator. That's right. (laughs) He is owed everything. Like the life in my lungs, right? It's it's his, right? Uh, The breath in my lungs, right? The life in my body. Um, I am not my own. Um, that we can say that both from the perspective of the, the saved Christian, uh, the justified Christian, with respect to Jesus Christ, as it does in Hebrews. But even prior to that, right, we should say, I am not my own, right? Um, I, yeah. am the image, I, am in the, I am in the image of God. I am defined in relationship to God. And I owe everything back to God, including the service of my body. You know, when people say, uh, it's my body and I can do what I want with it, no. Right. It's, 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 uh, it is, it by right, you owe obedience, even in your body to God. Right. So that when we think about things in those terms, right, then we say, well, what do, isn't that owed to God? And what you owe to God is perfect and complete obedience. And that's what's called the virtue, uh, historically, that's what's called the virtue of religion. Uh, we can think about being religious in kind of the broad sense of a practice, a community, and those sorts of things. But more narrowly, uh, d- defined. You can find this in many of the older authors, many of the pre-20th century authors. When they're, when they're talking about, the, when they're using the word religion, what they mean is the virtue of giving to God what is owed to God. That is a virtue. That is a habit that's right and proper, that's proportionate to our status as creatures and proportionate to him as our creator. And so Anselm talks about this. Like what I owe to God is everything. What I owe to God is, is again, complete obedience. That obedience about most things because it's, it's not the case that I depend on God for most things. It's, uh, 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 it's obedience to God in every single thing, period, uh, because every single thing I'm dependent upon God for. When we start to divorce God from uh, understanding who the human person is to this autonomous kind of uh, a discerning method that I can just discern who I am on sure. my own. I think what it does, and you, you kind of touched on this, is that it, it gives the person the idea that they kind of have to start from scratch. Right. That, you know, and I think that I think this is why our society suffers from anxiety so much. And, you know, you read, you read this everywhere that 
everybody has some sort of anxiety problems. Having this understanding of, you know, the creator-creature relationship, it relieves so much of that anxiety that, you know what, I'm not my own. I don't have to sit here and try to define myself. I don't have to sit here and do all of these things that the world says I have to do. And when we put that on children, it creates even more anxiety because they don't know how to process things. Of course, but I think yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's like it's not treating our children well because you know, you're putting a burden of responsibility on them that they cannot possibly manage. And then, you know, when you think about it in terms of adults, it's still the case, right, that we have to learn through our whole lives, right? I think this is a helpful, thinking about the scriptures, I mean, what, is, what happens with the children of Israel over and over again? What lesson do they learn over and over and over again uh, through the scriptures? They learn that they can't stand on their own. Every time yeah. right? they try to do it their way, it all fails. Right? You know? um, that's the story. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. like, I mean, if you read uh, a, a good practice you know, is to read, uh, some people find it boring, but to just read those historical books straight through. Uh, like, yeah. And you're like, this is all a disaster. <laughs> yeah. It's a very long song with like the same verse playing over and over and over. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, they screwed up. God remains faithful. They screwed up. God remains, you know, it's, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, but, but at the same time, like that, is, I think that's the, the lesson Christians need to begin with is their relationship, but also you know, that humility and ability to rely on God, right. you know, that, that, that would relieve, I think, so Absolutely. much yeah. uh, of suffering, anxiety and things mm-hmm. to begin with that and to, to move towards kind of uh, not just kind of a, a sentimental view of, of God in a way, but, but a realistic way of understanding who we are as creatures. Finding ourselves in that framework concretely means that my, I find my dignity, my purpose, my meaning in serving God, right? Uh, so that I, I relate, I think about myself as someone who is here to serve God, right? To obey God. Um, and, and that can sort of, of course, go out into other others, right? You know, other human beings and, and community. But that's where you begin, right? Is, is that there is a demand injustice placed upon me that's who I am metaphysically, uh, so that's authentic to, to, to my being, and it's the ethical demand. So that when we, when we think about engaging in life, decision-making, our passions, uh, all those sorts of things, our first point of reference should be, this is a little strange to, I think, hear sometimes, should be that God places demands upon us, right? There is a demand upon us, an ethical imperative to obey God mm-hmm. and, and that that's my, really my, my, almost my ethical priority, my ethical starting point. And I think very often, you know, we don't hear this sort of thing from Christians anymore. Right. But again, like if you read that the first chapter in the sinner's guide, right. And I just pointed out cause it's something I recently read, but you can find this in all sorts of other spiritual literature where they very often start with is not your best life. Now, not your best life in eternity, even right. Uh, what they start with is your status means that you need to be obeying God, right? You have, you, you're, you have a Lord and you are supposed to be obeying him. And I think in a, in a way, you know, in, in Romans chapter one, you know, St. Paul talks about how, how mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, right? Since that C.S. Lewis and other people talk about this, there is a sense, John Henry Newman talks this too, uh, of we do experience that demand, right? That is like, you don't have to teach kids necessarily to, you don't have to teach kids to have a conscience, 
right? Yeah. Yeah, they experience ethical demand. Now, very often it's in kind of a selfish way initially, right? Like, sure. you have violated my rights, <laughs> okay? But the idea that there are demands, right? That it's not just all a consequentialist seeking my own satisfaction, but, there, but that there is a kind of demand upon us, right? Uh, an ethical demand, a spiritual demand, a theological demand. That's a kind of, I think, where, <clears throat> you know, you, when we're sharing Christianity with others, we don't always have to maybe start there, but in our minds, that needs to be fundamental. And really, I think that, that setting, um, having that in mind, really sets the framework for the preaching of the gospel. Well, one of the, the greatest progressions in kind of anti-spirituality is the, the killing of the conscience, the killing of this kind of ethical imperative that we all, we all feel, we all hear, mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of the anti-spiritual person completely silences that and completely moves away from that to the point where, again, it's a very lonely world when everything is dependent upon you. Sure. Um, whereas, whereas the, you know, like you said, like the Christian to begin with that, that understanding that ethics is an integral part of this relationship, mm-hmm. that it's not something that is, you know, open or, you know, and this is where I think many Protestant denominations become very uh, unattractive is when they have kind of an open moral code. Well, we believe in Jesus, but your actions don't matter. Well, that's a form of dualism. It's a, I think it's a distortion that Luther, Cranmer, and Calvin would have all thought was crazy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think, and I think there's something at the, at the very heart of the human person that says, you know, while, you know, my, in my fallenness, that sounds great, but but there's something deep down that says, well, no, I think my my actions do matter. Right. Yeah. I, I you know, and, and and this is something again going even back to you know the beginnings of uh, kind of how we understand philosophy, going back to ancient mm-hmm. philosophy. So much of philosophy was about living rightly. Sure. So that even even in you know the 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 basis of the Christian worldview, that mm-hmm. ethics is not something that is simply uh, set aside or or it, it's something that is absolutely imperative to that creator-creature relationship, uh, yeah, but also, right. you know, in the fuller sense of living this out in a, in a true sense, in justice to God. Right, yeah, absolutely, yeah, in justice to God. So I think, you know, what we want to say is that in obedience to God, right, that <clears throat> while there's a lot of things we can talk about ethically from a, a variety of perspectives, uh, and that's all helpful and to the good, for I think a Christian worldview, it's ultimately like there's a way in which we always need to bring it back at some point, maybe not all the time, but at some point to this creator creature relationship and that there is this uh, ethical demand for obedience on my life. One of the things that I think is important about this in terms of the preaching of the gospel and the understanding uh, of the gospel is that um, not only, I think, do we experience this ethical demand, often we suppress it, right? But it is an experience, not just of something from me. That's the thing is it's, it's a, like Newman ca- talks about it as the, the, the kind of this regal voice, right? That is conscience, right? Like demanding of me that I do these things. And so that it carries with it that sense of majesty, authority, and obedience. Not only though do I have this uh, ethical demand, but I also fail, right? And so that before that ethical demand, before that absolute ethical demand, the next thing I need to realize about myself and other being other humans is that we are all ethical failures. Um, the biblical word for that is sinner. So, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's hard. And there's a and there's a complete guide for that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, that's right. That, there's a word for that. And, and like after creature, 
I think uh, I think I need to think of myself as a moral wreck. I am a sinner. I'm someone, you know, to different degrees. So, you know, uh, sure, certainly, right? You know, a good a good way to do you like ask you, know, you could ask yourself or so. Do you think that you're you think that you're good? And the answer should be maybe I think that, but I'm wrong. Uh, and man, it's just so hard for us to say that today. Uh, I think we, though because we've lost the sense of what am I measuring it against. If yeah. I'm measuring myself against Adolf Hitler, okay, fine, right? That's kind of what everybody does, right? You know, oh, I'm not a murderer. Well, congratulations. That's good. I mean, yeah. You're not, right? But if you measure yourself against the absolute ethical demand of the creator, okay, then yeah. what you are is a sinner, right? Because if you lie one time, if you lust in your heart one time, okay, then you have violated the absolute demand for perfection, right? That the, the law... Yeah pains right um and which makes you a sinner um i think that's a a huge a huge point especially when you talk about the imago dei the image you got that a lot of people they will they will not make that distinction they will say i am made in the image of god therefore i'm good and this is where i think they make the mistake they they will some of them even go so far as therefore i am morally good uh, because I am made in the image of God, I'm good, right? Yeah, I am good. My 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 thoughts are usually towards good, right? Usually, or I generally act in the good. You know, no, you know, like like you know, yes, we are we are good. Uh, you know, in that we are made in the image of God, mm-hmm. but you know, in our moral capabilities and our moral failings, we have to recognize that. And and again, if we want the gospel to be good news, there there has to be bad news. Um, there has to be, you know, the, the, the bad news and the bad news really has to be bad. You know, I think that's important for, for Christians. It, and again, all of these things, the, I think what's at the, the foundation of uh, the creator creature relationship, mm-hmm. um, this idea of that we are fallen, the particular virtue that's at the foundation of all of these is humility, sure. which, which again, the, the greatest enemy of humility is pride. Right. Which, you know, some people in our culture even take up as their mantra, mm-hmm. you know, pride, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which I, I find very, you know, uh, troubling if you want to pick one of sure. the seven deadly sins as your, <laughs> ra- as your rally cry. So I think that's where uh, Christians need to begin is to, to have this understanding in their minds right. of, this, of this relationship, but also to have this kind of uh, spiritual disposition of sure. humility. Yeah. So, yeah, it should foster that for no doubt. It, you know, it should also, you know, foster needing a savior, right? Yeah. So we, you know, early in your conversation, we talked some, uh, you know, sort of, uh, well, isn't Christianity anthropocentric because Jesus came to save man? Well, Jesus did come to save man, but it's not anthropocentric, right? Uh, yeah. and so this is, again, difficult, I think, for us to deal with today because it pushes against our sense of autonomy. It pushes against our, se- our sense of, I'm good. Human beings are good, right? Um, you know, the, the scripture clearly says that we're not good, right? Uh, over and over again, it, it points out that like there's just passages after passage where where it says, right, that that none seek God, that all have turned away, right? That's the reality you have to grapple with: that we are rebels, that we are in violation of that absolute ethical demand that's laid upon us, and therefore that we rightly stand under judgment as rebels, right, as sinners. And, and I mean this for myself, okay? So I deserve to be punished. It's owed to me in justice as someone who has rebelled against the Creator right? To whom I yeah. own perfect obedience. This is why the scripture says, God does not leave the sinner unpunished. 
So that should be the moment where kind of the bottom drops out for you to some degree, you know, because you think, yeah. oh, wow, if this is really the case, right, then to talk about the bad news you're talking about, that is the bad news. And again, I think in some ways it's kind of a relief. I think the, the, the pressure to pretend that we're morally good, right, cr uh, creates in us all sorts of delusions, all sorts of, yeah. you know, mask that we put on to try to sort of, here's see look i'm being good now right i'm being good now because i'm going to church or i'm being good now which it is good to go to church but don't just, uh, like that's necessary <laughs> but that doesn't make you good right if you if what you're counting on is oh i go to church most of the yeah. time right no um you know you you contribute to the right political causes no uh you have uh feelings of compassion for people on the other side of the world who are suffering that makes me good no all of us are are, are in that position of not being good and being under this uh, judgment as such. And it's, I think, as I say, there's a kind of, if you can just come to accept that, you know, like in, in various recovery programs, they talk about like the first step towards recovery, right? Is to accept the problem, right? And the problem is, yeah. right? I'm the problem, right? I, my moral failure uh, before God is my problem. And, and in a way, you're sort of like, I found like when I started really thinking through these things, I found it a huge relief. Not in the sense that I thought, oh, I, that, well, I, I can just be a moral slacker now. But that, yeah, you know, I messed up and I fall short and that's the way human beings are, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, particularly with when it, when it comes to preaching the gospel, that, that becomes the foundation, like you said. We do not leave people there like you're a moral wreck, you know, right. eh, see you later. No, <laughs> you know, and even when the church talks about evangelization, she talks about how there has to be explicit proclamation. Sure. And, and and this is where you know that remedy comes in that mm -hmm. you know that we we're, we're called to have this humility but not humility and despair sure. but humility and hope because yeah. you know part of the relief that people feel is that when they understand uh, who they are uh, in in their you know in their fallenness they also it, it doesn't come in in isolation or it should never come in isolation it should come rather in complementarity with the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, right. that, 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 that he is there. And so I think um, what we're saying, to go back to that original question you posed, you know, and, and thinking about in terms of theocentric or anthropocentric, I think that salvation, the work, you know, what was accomplished by Jesus Christ in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, we can talk about that from a variety of perspectives, and I think that that's uh, perfectly good and legitimate. Uh, but I think a core thing to talk about is uh, not the only, but a, 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 something we should not leave off and we have left off, is that what, God, what Christ saves us from is the wrath of God. Um, yeah. is that we deserve hell, right? We deserve hell for our rebellion, for, what we've for the law that we've broken, right? Uh, this is the perspective that comes through very clearly in St. Anselm and Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Robert Bellman, Alphonse Liguori, etc., that, that we deserve that status, right? It's, it's not wrong for that to happen, right? And it's not as if God just yeah. woke up one day and said, oh, wow, there's hell. No, it's like, it's part of the universe he built, right? And it's just, it's just, right, that uh, the unrepentant sinners suffer the punishment of hell. Then you say, but thanks be to God, right? That he sent his only son, right, uh, to pay a penalty that we couldn't pay, right? Uh, to save us from right what we deserve. So I, I think that that's where you, that's where like uh, Christian evangelization 
actually make sense. <laughs> right? I think there's sometimes a key part that is left off of kind of the evangelical process is people just begin with Jesus. Well, you know, a lot of t- you know, the good news needs to be placed in perspective of also the bad news, but also part of the ev- part of evangelization is not just bringing people to Jesus Christ, but showing them reality as it truly is, right. which is which is the basis of this Catholic worldview that we're talking about, particularly beginning with that creator creature relationship, sure. and also moving into you know all the biblical uh, perspectives that that form the framework of this worldview. The the good news is a good place to end, and so uh, that'll do it for us today. I take every thought captive. I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Smith, and in the meantime, check us out at CatholicStudiesAcademy.com. Until next time, God bless.